the whole world is just dying to be a tree. A professor of mine once told me that, and I think of it quite often. He was talking about the tendency of forests to encroach upon cleared land. Now, those of you with trees around your house have probably seen the hordes of saplings that arise when you haven't mown the grass for a couple weeks, right? Imagine taking a 10-year break from mowing your lawn. What do you think it would look like? The whole world is just dying to be a tree. If only that were the case with us. Trees are strong. They're stable. They're patient in growth. They're hospitable, fruitful, beautiful through the seasons. Trees are enduring. If strong, they're resistant to storms. If healthy, they're resistant to drought. It's no wonder, then, that the whole world is just dying to be a tree. Well, this morning, friends, I'd like to begin our short series in the book of Psalms with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 opens the Hebrew Psalter by comparing the righteous to a tree and the wicked to chaff. Now, just like with Exodus before, we'll study these psalms in their original literary context, but then we'll trace their reception throughout Scripture, focusing on just a few key passages. The one difference, though, is that the receptions we'll look at will be the passages that were just read before the sermon. My hope is that this allows for a more coherent experience and for the theme of the service to come through. So while the lectionary uh, will provide the psalm that we'll look at in the sermon, I have chosen the other readings myself and plan to do that at least for the next few weeks. So let's get into it with Psalm 1, uh, but before we do so, let's pray. And I'd like to read a prayer from Thomas Akempis from the 14th century. So would you now pray with me? Grant me... Grant us, O Lord, to know what we ought to know, to love what we ought to love, to praise what delights thee most, to value what is precious in thy sight, and to hate what is offensive to thee. Do not allow us to judge according to the sight of our eyes nor to pass sentence according to the hearing of the ears of ignorant men, but to discern with a true judgment between things visible and spiritual, and above all, always to inquire what is the good pleasure of thy will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalms, the book of Psalms, this is a different literary genre of course, than the book of Exodus, which we've been in. Uh, the book of Psalms is poetry, and it's particularly Hebrew poetry. Now, last time I checked, about 33% of the Bible is written in poetry. Isn't that frustrating? <laughs> Non-straightforward language. I, I did a class, a Sunday school class, shortly after we arrived here on the Psalms, how to read the Psalms as literature, 
Uh, and we talked about not what do the Psalms mean, but how do the Psalms mean. And the thing about poetry is it's not exclusively conveying information content, but it's conveying an experience. If you've ever read good poetry, you'll see that the poet is trying to take a set of feelings, an experience, a vision almost, and give you that in the poem. And so the idea is to follow carefully the form of the language, the the way that it sounds when you read it, the structure, the figures of speech, and through that experience, you will attain the what of the poem, the meaning, okay? So with these psalms, we are going to follow how they mean in order to get to the what, what they mean. And in Hebrew poetry, the most basic structural unit is what's called parallelism, parallelism. So what that means is items, could be phrases, lines, images, are set in some kind of symmetry. And they could be opposite, they could be similar, could be comparing, contrasting, it could be just that the number of syllables is the same. But all throughout Hebrew poetry, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Prophets, you'll see this parallelism. And the idea is that we have to see the relation between items and discern what that relation is, and it's through all that that we'll experience the meaning, we'll experience the poem. In addition to this, you get figures of speech. So these are things like metaphor, personification, topics from your English class growing up. But it's non-straightforward speech. You have to unpack these things. And so my plan is to do that as we look at the Psalms, to read them according to their literary genre in order to understand them as well as we can in their context. So let's dive in then with Psalm 1, uh, which orients us to the 150 psalms in the Hebrew Psalter. I think it is intentionally placed at the beginning of the Psalter uh, because some of the themes that are included in Psalm 1 continue to structure the 150 other psalms. So Psalm 1, uh, we're going to be looking at it in the ESV, but there are a number of beautiful translations of Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 in the ESV, we will read it together, and as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You may be seated.
As you can see, in the ESV at least, there are three stanzas. There should be breaks between verses 2 and 3 and verses 4 and 5. Three stanzas in this poem. The first stanza, you'll notice, relates to many themes in the last stanza. And then the middle, verses 3 and 4, kind of stands alone. It's the core of the poem. The poem begins with a very common literary form, in biblical literature at least, and that is what's called a beatitude. So you probably know of the beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus says some beatitudes. Um, But beatitudes are found all over the Old Testament as well, especially in the book of Psalms. And so the idea is that of a kind of moral calculus or describing the kind of person, the kind of life that is favored by God, that aligns with the heart and will of God. So you could translate favored is the man or the person or happy is the man or the person, but it's not just a superficial happiness. It's this kind of person enjoys favor with God because their life is aligned with God's life. That's the idea. In this poem, we first get negatives. Blessed is the man who does not do three things. And I want to translate in English in a way that really keeps the parallelism tight because the ESV unfortunately doesn't do that. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands not in the way of sinners, who sits not in the seat of scoffers. You can already see which items are set in symmetry, walking, standing, sitting, counsel, way, seat, wicked, sinners, scoffers. The poet is not just referring to these three particular situations. These are representative of a host of other activities and behaviors. But what's interesting is if you think about walking, standing, and sitting, especially in the Hebrew Bible, that refers to one's life, one's manner of life. Walking to and fro, you're standing up, you're sitting down. Often the, the Torah, the, the Bible itself, the Old Testament, is spoken of as a journey or a path that you would walk. And so your life is like you're going for a really long walk. But we have three verbal activities here. And if you read them in sequence, it's kind of hectic, right? It's kind of busy. The counsel of the wicked, especially in parallel with the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers, those Hebrew terms, seem to relate to more official settings. So perhaps a courtroom, a marketplace, a place where government officials would, would be, people selling and buying, people judging, ruling, that sort of thing. And given the fact that many of the Psalms are written by King David, it seems that the context here is somewhat political. It's not necessarily just the, the daily activities of an average person. Let's keep that in mind. So blessed is the person who does not engage in the affairs or activities of these scoundrels, sinners, scoffers, wicked. 
Now, there's much that we could say about that, who that refers to, but the rest of the poem and the readings we'll look at will flesh that out in greater detail. So we get three negatives in verse 1, but then in verse 2, we get a positive. And I think it is saved for verse 2 for emphasis, to make us wait so that the point is more powerful. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And it's not even that. There's no verb here. Whereas before, you have these kind of frantic verbs of walking, standing, sitting, pursuing things in life, grasping at things in life, the affairs of the officials and so forth. Here it simply says, the blessed person is one whose delight, whose pleasure rests in, there's no verb, we have to supply it, that whose pleasure rests in Torah, the law of God. The opposite of this hectic set of verbs, it's a resting, a being planted, sitting by the law of God. And on his law, he meditates. We do get a verb here, but the verb in Hebrew is to murmur or to whisper. There really wasn't silent reading in this context. And so when people would would read Torah, they would whisper it under their breath. They would meditate on it, murmur it, day and night. The blessed person is not the person engaged frantically in all these worldly affairs, but the person who is planted in God's word. That stanza ends with the righteous, and so the next one begins with the righteous. There's an overlap. He, the blessed person, is like a tree. Planted by streams of water. A tree doesn't walk, stand, or sit. It's fixed. And if the righteous person is the tree, the streams or channels of water are God's word. Living water. The blessed person sends its roots to the right place. It's fixed, it's not moving, it's not grasping, but it is planted by the source of life. And therefore, it yields its fruit in its season. It's not idle, it's not unproductive, but its fruit grows slowly, reliably, and its leaf does not wither. It is healthy, enduring. In all that he or it does, you could translate either way, the tree or the righteous person, and I think that's on purpose, refers to both. And all that it does, it prospers. You get that whole description of the righteous person who's like a tree. And then in verse 4, all we get about the wicked is they are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is the complete opposite of the tree that's described in verse 3. Chaff is the byproduct of the threshing process where you would harvest wheat, you separate the grain, which you turn to flour, and the chaff is the waste product, and it blows away in the wind. It's basically dust, worthless, transient. This stanza ends with the wicked, and so the last stanza begins with the wicked. Again, the overlap. But connecting back to some themes in the first stanza, the poet concludes... By saying, therefore, on this basis, 
the wicked will not stand in the judgment. But this is not the same word for stand that you see in verse 1. In the Greek version of this passage, it translates it with the word for resurrection. The wicked will not arise at the final judgment, is what's being said. They will not be lifted up, vindicated, justified on the last day. Nor will sinners stand, you have to supply the verb, in the congregation of the righteous. At first, in verses 1 and 2, you have this group of wicked people and this single righteous person who, who has to commit against all this influence, commit to God. Here, there's a congregation of righteous people, and the wicked is cast as someone standing alone in a court of law. And finally, the poem concludes in verse 6, for, or because, the Lord knows the way. The Lord embraces the manner of life of the righteous. It aligns with God's will, with his heart. But the way of the wicked will perish. It'll fade away like chaff. Psalm 1 contrasts the righteous and the wicked, comparing the righteous to a tree and the wicked to chaff. But the two passages that were read before the sermon, I think, extend and clarify the meaning of this psalm for us as Christians. And so I'd like to turn to them at this time. The first one we're going to look at is Jeremiah 17. And we won't read it in full since you've already heard it, but you can turn there if you'd like. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah in Israel, and it was centuries after the writing of Psalm 1. He did most of his preaching in and around Jerusalem, so the administrative capital of Judah, And when I say that he was a prophet, I don't necessarily mean he was predicting the future all the time, but he was one who unveils God's perspective on reality. So often prophets would speak criticism to those in power, speak criticism in relation to current events. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does throughout the book. But the power that he criticizes isn't secular or unreligious power, but is the power of religious leaders in Jerusalem. There's one quote that says the prophetic voice in the Old Testament is primarily an inside voice. Not in the sense of quiet, but in the sense that the Hebrew prophets spoke judgment to the people of the covenant, to the people who should have known better. So that is what Jeremiah is doing. He's speaking against the injustice and corruption, unfaithfulness among Judah's leaders, the priests, the kings, the prophets, who had abandoned God's law in pursuit of power, wealth, prestige, and so forth. And so you'll see in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8, we get basically a different version of Psalm 1. Cursed is the man who blank, blessed is the man who blank. We see that the scoffers, the mockers, the sinners, the wicked in Psalm 1 are defined as the man who trusts in man 
and makes flesh his strength. These are leaders who trusted in military alliances, earthly technology, politics for their salvation. That person is like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. An environment completely opposite that of the tree in Psalm 1. On the other hand, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. This is the righteous group in Psalm 1. He is like a tree planted by water that sends its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves remain green. Even in the year of drought, it bears fruit. We see here that Jeremiah is interpreting the wicked in Psalm 1 as these corrupt religious leaders who were choosing political associations over commitment to God's word. Blessed is the person who ignores all of those temptations and remains firmly planted in the law of God. The next text that I want to look at is a bit more interesting in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, you can turn there. Jesus is acting like Jeremiah here. He's speaking against the injustice and corruption of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So the high priest, the Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, who were in league with the Romans in the first century. Our passage bears this out, especially in the middle section, him cleansing the temple. To give you a little context, at this stage in history, the priesthood in Jerusalem managed all the functions of the temple. And the temple was a massive economic enterprise. The temple in the first century employed over 7,000 Levites and priests, physicians, weavers, metal workers, vendors of all sorts. And in order to maintain all of these functions, they imposed a soil tax on all residents of Palestine, a head tax, various sacrifice requirements requiring them to offer certain animals and often purchase them from the temple, and various vow offering requirements, so different objects that would be offered. So in addition to all the taxes that the Romans charged, the temple charged almost four layers. And it, it was leading these peasants like the disciples into poverty, friends. And the priests and the Pharisees were getting rich. And there have been excavations in Jerusalem that have shown that the, the homes of the high priest were magnificent luxury villas. You can see the evidence and so Jesus is ministering in that context. And so he comes to a fig tree in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. And, and you may think Jesus just has it out for fig trees, or he's just really hungry and he's mad. But friends, the fig tree in the Old Testament was a symbol for the people of Israel. He will be like a tree planted beside streams of water. Friends, we're supposed to think of a fig tree. 
A fig tree that's either healthy and fruiting or one that is withered and leafless. So Jesus sees this fig tree. It's got leaves on it. It looks good. It must be fruitful. It's got nothing on it. And when it says it's not the season for figs, we know that something different is going on here. This is a parable. I have no doubt that this actually happened, but it's an object lesson. So right after this, when he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, you fruitless fig tree, he goes into the temple and he sees all of these people standing, sitting, and walking, tables, cash registers, the ancient version, and he gets angry. And this might be the angriest Jesus ever gets. Because they have turned what should be a house of prayer into a den of thieves, into a marketplace. He clears the temple. And right after this, it just so happens that he sees the fig tree and it's withered to its roots. The fig tree here near Bethany represents the people of Israel. Jesus is, is showing us that the people of Israel who were supposed to be a healthy tree planted beside streams of water, that they reached their roots toward other places. Money, power, prestige, worldly affairs. And the result is that they withered to their very roots. I hope it is clear at this point that the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers in Psalm 1 came to be seen throughout history as corrupt religious leaders, as Israelites who valued wealth and power, ambition over simply resting in God's word. For the people of Israel, that they were supposed to be a tree planted beside life-giving water, Bearing fruit for all the nations. But throughout history, they decided, some decided, to be something else. It's clear to me that the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers, stands in direct contrast to the life of Jesus. The word of God. The living water. It says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the word of God. Cursed is the man whose heart turns away from God. Jesus lived a life of complete and utter delight in God's word. Yet, he was not blessed. But he was cursed in large part by us. He did not grow into a healthy tree. Instead, he was nailed to one. Yet though the world cursed him, though we cursed him, God in the end did more than bless him. Friends, Jesus lived exactly the sort of life that the psalmist here calls blessed. But in this world, this sin-darkened world, he was cursed for it. In choosing to be a tree, then, 
as opposed to a desert shrub or a handful of chaff, you might end up carrying that tree in the form of a cross. What I mean is, if you choose God over the world, you will have difficulty in this life. You will. But despite this, in the end, you'll be blessed. And more than blessed at that. We will be tempted, like these Israelites, to choose worldly ambition and pursuits instead of simply resting in Christ. But if we choose Jesus, and if we keep choosing Jesus, I promise that no matter how hot the heat, no matter how dry the drought, our leaf will not wither, our fruit will not fail. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this clear example of what you want for all of us. Help us, Lord, amidst all the distractions of our world to remain planted by streams of living water. And we know where that living water is. We know who it is. It's you, Jesus. Help us to stay committed to your word, the text of your word, in conjunction with the living word, with you, Jesus. Help us to rest by those streams. Keep us healthy. Keep us fruiting. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, amen.